We are now actually in chapter, just zipping along into chapter 27. Early in the morning, all the head Kohanim and elders met to plan how to bring about Yeshua's death. And they put him in chains and they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And when Yehuda, who had betrayed him, saw that Yeshua had been condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of coins to the head Kohanim and elders saying, I sinned in betraying an innocent man to death. Was that to us? They answered, that's your problem. Hurling the pieces of silver into the sanctuary, he left. Then he went off and hanged himself. The head Kahanam took the silver coins and said, it is prohibited to put them into the temple treasury because this, it is blood money. So they decided to use it to buy Potter's Field as a cemetery for foreigners. And this is how it came to be called the Field of Blood, a name it still bears. Then, what Jeremiah the prophet spoke was fulfilled. And they took the 30 silver coins, which was the price the people of Israel had agreed to pay for him, and used them to buy the potter's field, just as the Lord directed me. Meanwhile, Yeshua was brought before the governor, and the governor put the question to him, Are you king of the Jews? And Yeshua answered, The words are yours. But when he was accused by the head Kohanim and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, did you hear all these charges they're making against you? But to the governor's great amazement, he didn't say a single word in reply to the accusations. Now, it was the governor's custom during a festival to set free one prisoner, whomever the crowd asked for. There was at that time a notorious prisoner, prisoner being held, Yeshua Barhuda. And when the crowd gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to set free for you, Barabbas or Yeshua, and called the Messiah? For he understood that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. And when he was sitting in court, his wife sent him a message, Leave the innocent man alone. Today in a dream I suffered terribly because of him. But the head of the Kohanan persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas' release and to have Yeshua executed on the stake. Which of the two do you want me to set free for you, asked the governor. Baraba, they answered. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Yeshua called the Messiah? And they all said, put him to death at the stake. Put him to death at the stake. And when he asked why, what crime has he committed? They shouted all the louder, louder, put him to death on the stake. And when Pilate saw he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, my hands are clean of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And then he released them. Baraba, but Yeshua, after having him whipped, he handed over to be executed on the stake. Kangaroo court. <laughs> a court or kangaroo trial, sometimes likened to a dumbhead court martial, refers to a sham legal proceeding or a court. The colloquial phrase kangaroo court is used to describe judicial proceedings that deny due process rights in the name of expediency. Such rights include the rights to summon witnesses, the rights to cross-examine, the right not to incriminate oneself, the right not to be tried on secret evidence, the right to control one's own defense, the right to exclude evidence that's improperly obtained, irrelevant, or inherently inadmissible, for example, hearsay the right to exclude judges or jurors on the ground of partiality or conflict of interest, and the right of appeal. The outcome of a trial by kangaroo court is essentially determined in advance, usually for the purpose of providing a conviction, either by growing through, going through the motions of manipulated procedure or by allowing no defense at all. 
etymology. The term kangaroo court may have been popularized during the California gold rush of 1849. The first recorded usage is from 1853 in a Texas context. It comes from the notion of a judicial a justice proceeding by leaps, like the um, marsupial, despite the association of the kangaroo with Australia, the phrase is considered an Americanism, mock justice. The term is often applied to courts subjectively judged as such, while others consider the court to be legitimate and legal. A kangaroo court may be a court that has held its, had its integrity compromised. For example, if the judge is not impartial and refuses to be recused. It may also be an elaborately scripted event intended to appear fair while having the outcome predetermined from the start. Terms meaning show trial, like the German Schauprozis, indicate the result is fixed before, usually guilty, and the trial is just for show. Notorious for Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin's kangaroo courts against his enemies when he labeled enemies of the people, notably in the context of the Great Purge. Another example is the Volkritz Holtz People's Court process against the enemies of the National Socialist regime. In 2008, Singapore's Eternal General, Attorney General applied to the High Court to commence contempt proceedings against three individuals who appeared in this new Supreme Court building wore identical white, wearing identical white t-shirts bearing a palm-sized picture of a kangaroo dressed in a judge's gown. Okay, we've been looking at the ultimate kangaroo courts last week and this week. What's the difference though between these kangaroo courts and the traditional kangaroo court. Any thought? Trials of Jesus, yeah. They were ordained by God. Exactly. The individual who was the victim of those courts was actually in control of those courts. They thought they were in control, but what they were doing was simply carrying out God's preordained direction. That didn't let them off the hook for being kangaroo courts. But the fact of the matter is, Nobody has any control over the situation but God. And that's one of the three points that we looked at last time. The first one is, of course, we see that darkness hates light. The reason the Jewish leadership carried out all of this illegal activity was they went behind closed doors in the dark, away from the people, so nobody would know what they were doing because what they were doing was wrong. We read in John 3, 13:19-21. Now, this is the basis for judging that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come into the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. Now, at the practical level, not the spiritual level, we've seen this recently as certain sides of the Congress have tried to pass stuff quickly behind closed doors so that people, so that the details wouldn't come out so the public could see them and raise a ruckus. Okay, they haven't succeeded too well, but that's what they've been trying to do. But more clearly, from a spiritual standpoint, is more and more in the public forum, Christians and God's truth are trying, are being, or at least are attempted to be shut down. Because 
they reflect negatively our light. God's light reflects negatively on what's going on in the society and the culture. And so it's judgmental. You know, you have a perfect right to your faith, but that's a private issue. It doesn't belong in the public forum. Well, of course it doesn't because it's light and it's showing the darkness that's come into the public forum. So in that very real sense, we see that increasing attempt to keep God's light out of the public forum today. The second thing we saw last time was that God is in control even over darkness. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter betrayed Jesus. The disciples abandoned Jesus. Much of Israel rebelled against and abandoned God in their rejection of Jesus. But all of this was used by God to advance his program to move Jesus to the cross to accomplish that which he prophesied and promised since since the fall and was planned since create before creation. So the father is in control of the entire process. Remember one specific example Jesus said to Peter when Peter went during the arrest when Peter wanted to intervene. Jesus said, do you not think I can call upon my father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were simply carrying out God's program. But they didn't receive the blessings because they were carrying it out with an evil intent. Rome, well, this wasn't a new business for Rome. I remember all of Rome got thrown upside down just to have a census. So a couple of people and their baby could end up in Bethlehem. So this is nothing new. To mess with a Roman court in Judea was nothing compared to what God had already done once before. So they think they're just dealing with political expediency and carrying out what they got to do to sort of rule over this troublesome little community. But God's in control of that, too. The fact of the matter is he is in control of this whole process. So dark cannot succeed because God is still in control. And finally, keeping all of that in mind, we're called to make disciples. And when we offer salvation, sadly, more often than not, that's probably going to be rejected. Not always. More often than not. And sometimes it's going to be rejected with an outright attitude of hostility also. After all, the dark doesn't want light shown on it. And that's nothing new. But the fact is, God is in control here too. We don't need to be afraid. Remember, we're just called to get the gospel out. When we do that, we're blessed by that opportunity. As far as what the person does who hears the gospel, that's between them and God. And they'll be blessed or condemned accordingly. But that's in God's hands, too. And so Jesus encouraged the disciples with the reality of this whole problem. Back in Matthew 10, 17 to 20, Jesus said, be on your guard against men. They'll hand you over to local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for you will not be speaking, but the spirit of your father will be speaking through you. We don't need to worry. God's in control. He'll give us orders if we're walking with him. And so all of this should be a constant reminder and encouragement to us, no matter what it looks like. And if you've read the headlines this morning in the paper, why did you do that? I keep telling you not to. Oh, 
The fact is, it doesn't matter what the world looks like out there. God is finally in control and allows or stops as he as he desires. So we do not need to live fearfully in a fallen world. Now, let's look once more at the um, breakdown of these trials. And I know you can't read those too well, but you've had them over the last couple of weeks. But anyway, remember, we had the the religious trial. And that Jesus had three appearances. We looked at those last week. He appeared before Ananias. Then he appeared before Caiaphas. And then he appeared before the full Sanhedrin. This week, we're going to see that he appears before Pilate. Then he appears before Herod. Herod, everybody's trying to buck pass here. And then he ends up appearing before Pilate again. As last time, we're going to have to jump around. Even though we're in Matthew, we're going to have to jump around between the synoptics and John to cover all the events because Matthew doesn't do that. In fact, it's a little unclear as you go through there with some of the things that are being said where they said at the first hearing or the third hearing, it's a little hard. So we'll try to make that as clear as possible. But unfortunately, before we can get to that, we have to deal with one other little issue, and that is Judas. Now, remember here at the beginning of chapter 27, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders and the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death, and they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Meanwhile, going on at the same time, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest picked up the coins. And it is said it's against the law to put this money into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as the burial places for foreigners. This is why it's always been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. They took the 30, piece, uh, 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now, what's interesting is Judas feels guilty. Judas feels remorse. But Judas didn't really repent. He resolved issues his own way. And he acts like a lot of us. First thing he did was try to somehow, if he could undo it, it would be like it never happened. So what did he do? He ran back to the uh, to the leaders and he tried to get them to take the money back because if he didn't have the money, then somehow he didn't do this. Okay. Their attitude was, eh, it's your problem. What do we care? We got bigger fish to fry. So he throws the money, he goes running out. And then he hangs himself because all he did was overwhelmed by the guilt of what he did. He recognized Jesus was an innocent man. I don't know what he thought was going to happen. You know, we've speculated a lot on that, but we don't really know what his thinking was. We do know Satan was involved. We've talked about this. But we also know that Judas opened that door, went down that path, and Judas was responsible for his own actions. Could he have repented and been saved and restored? Absolutely. Obviously, God knew, not only did he, did he know, but he warned in advance through the prophet 
many, 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 many years before that Judas was going to do this. What's interesting, just a small example of what we've been already talking about, what's interesting is when the chief priests and elders took the money, it's, isn't it fascinating how scrupulous they'd become all of a sudden about keeping the law? They just had an illegal trials all night. They'd just been in the process of trying to get G- Jesus, an innocent man, condemned to death. But heaven forbid we let 30 pieces of blood money end up in the treasury because that would be a bad idea. But in doing so, once again, they are carrying out the actions that God prophesied hundreds of years before. And they don't get it. And it wasn't that they didn't know scripture. It's that they didn't want to see, didn't see, and didn't recognize their involvement in the midst of all this. In Zechariah 11:13, we read, And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I gave 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So again, even in the little things, God is in control. And God, and Jesus' enemies, Judas, the, the chief priests, the elders, are carrying out God's will down to the littlest detail. We'll see that, of course, with the Roman soldiers at the cross. Everything here was spelled out in advance. It's fascinating. Some people say, well, Jesus said on the cross what he did, knowing what was uh, written in scripture so that he'd fulfill prophecy. I'm sorry, somebody's dying on a cross isn't really thinking that way anyway. But he couldn't control these events. He couldn't control what the Roman soldiers did under that theory. God is in control of all of these, little down to the littlest detail. And God, those who are reacting against God, are fulfilling God's word in their very actions. And so Judas is dead. Did it have to end that way? No. Did God say it would end that way? Yes. But Judas was responsible for his own choices. See, this this is the bottom line. God gives all of us the responsibility for the consequences of our own choices. And if he does that, that means we are free to make our choices. And so Judas is dead. And it's really sad because it's so, it was so, all of this was so unnecessary. Christ could have fulfilled this. God would have worked this out without Judas's having to make the choices he did. Just as we keep referring back to Joseph's brothers, as Judas, as Joseph said to them, God, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. He would have gotten Joseph to Egypt any, any number of ways. So, but his brothers did did it for evil and God brought good out of it. But this is to be an encouragement to us. That no matter what's going on in our lives, negatively speaking, or who in our lives is negative, as long as we're walking with the Lord, God can bring good out of it for us, if not for them. So, here we go. The trial before Pilate. As I said, the Jewish leaders now wanted him executed. And they and they also wanted off everybody also here is ducking responsibility because they'd been having trials and people been put to death, but they didn't want the people to hold them responsible. You know, we need more money, so we're just going to increase with both. Oh, never mind. Um, didn't want the people to see them as responsible, so they dumped the whole problem on Rome 
to get Rome to execute him so that they're off the hook. And so they take Jesus off to Pilate because it hasn't been working pretty very well. Now, I'm not going to go into Pilate's background, but if you do some reading on this guy, his life had been a mess, which was probably why he was the pro, uh, proctor and in charge of this backwater troublesome area. He had messed up all over the place. And uh, so here he is stuck with it. So now let's read some other other passages. Luke 23, 1 through 5. Here's Luke's account. Then the whole assembly rose, led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, now listen carefully to the charges. We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, well, are you king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they assisted. He stirs up the people all over Judah by his teachings. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Notice what they're charging him of. Actually, blatant lies here because they they know the only charges they can bring that Rome may listen to is sedition. First of all, he's telling people not to pay taxes. But you better be careful handing out those DE4s. You know, nothing the government works, hates worse than people telling you how to avoid paying your taxes, right? Especially Rome. So here's something the Roman government will listen to. The other thing that they're saying is he is claiming to be a king, which would seem to be sedition and against the Roman government. And so we'll listen to those. But Pilate listens to him. By the way, notice Jesus will answer Pilate doesn't say much, but he does answer Pilate. He doesn't even bother answering the charges, though, of the chief priests and the elders. Because Pilate is speaking sort of neutrally here and doesn't have any personal acts to grind. So he says, are you king? And Jesus says, well, that's what you, if that's what you say. Well, Pilate listened to that. And Pilate, as we'll see later, he knows exactly what's going on. He doesn't want any part of this silliness from his perspective. This is a bunch of hostile, infighting, jealous old men who are trying to nail this guy for their own personal reasons. He doesn't get it. He doesn't see any problem here from Rome's standpoint. And he doesn't want anything to do with it. He says, enough already. The charge of blasphemy, if they had brought that one, remember, because that's what they had said he was guilty of and wanted to execute him for, <laughs> in a under a government that worshipped the multitudinous God. Somehow I don't think blasphemy would have flown very well. And they knew that, so they said, eh. So they come, and here they've given up even trying to be subtle. They just blatantly outlaw. They reverse a statement that they probably knew where he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and said, he says, don't render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. So they don't care. But he sees through it. But, okay, Pilate's a politician. He seems, in spite of that, to have had some integrity in that he doesn't want to get involved in Jewish politics and he doesn't want to get involved with Jewish politics against an innocent party. So, Luke tells us in 23.7, here we go, trying to dump it off on some poor other schmuck. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, remember they made the mistake of saying he started in Galilee? Well, Galilee was under Herod's rule. So when he learned Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who was, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. He came in for the Passover too, I guess, because he had the 
make the show. So he says, oh, good. I don't have to deal with this. Let's just send him off to Herod and he's out of my hands. Uh, you know, one can almost feel sorry for poor old Pilate here because apparently the only thing Herod wanted with Jesus is to fulfill his own curiosity about who he was. Now, remember back when, after Herod, and we're talking the same Herod here, had arranged for the death of John the Immerser. And then later, when the stories of Jesus started coming back to Herod, he was afraid that somehow or other this was John resurrected. And so he had developed all of this curiosity about who Jesus was. And so Pilate sends him over. And instead of dealing with the issues, he uh, just gets really interested in what's going on here. So in going on with Luke in 23, 8 to 12, we read, Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. For From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracles. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressed him in an elegant robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends because before this they'd been enemies. I'm not... (laughs) He asks, I can, I can just see this. He's not asking about the charges. He's saying, oh, what about, what, did you do this? Did you really do that miracle? Hey, how about showing me some of your tricks? He's, he is a weird guy. That's what's going on. And meanwhile, the, the Jewish leaders are just getting really, if they were frustrated before, now they're really getting furious because this guy is some joker who's not even interested in what they're doing. Finally, he gets mad. Why does he get mad? I don't know, but I'd be willing to bet. It's because Jesus is entertaining him and showing him the tricks he wants to see, and he's bugged. It has nothing to do with the charges. He's just bugged because he's not getting his days worth of entertainment. So he and the soldiers, figuring they got to get something entertaining out of this, mock him and send him back off to Pilate and say, hey, it's your problem. And now, having not got along with the enemies of my enemies or my friends. Now, all of a sudden, Herod and Pilate turn into bosom buddies for the rest of their period of time. Isn't that special? <clears throat> Kerner, interestingly, you know, this is a case of politics making strange bedfellows. Kerner notes, speaking uh, of this passage in Luke, says, Herod and Pilate had had plenty of opportunities to become alienated. For instance, Antiochus had intervened in a matter concerning votive shields, reported in Philo, And on another occasion, Pilate had had pilfered the temple treasury for funds for an aqueduct. Even the event of Luke 13.1 could have been provocation, given the ambitious Herod Antiphas a sign of influence in Jerusalem would certainly create a friendship, which in upper classes often meant political alliance. In Luke 13.1 we read, Now, there were at the present time, at that time, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So they had both had plenty of fun and games, but now they saw a chance to be allies, I guess. So anyway, off we go. Back to Pilate. Pilate having not been able to pass the buck. Now Pilate feels like he's been backed into a corner. And bottom line, Pilate was a politician. And as I said, he'd made a lot of mistakes. That's how he ended up in in Palestine from the Roman government. That's where they, now if you were at the FBI, you know, the X-Files or something like that, you might really miss up. They send you to Anchorage or someplace further north. Well, then they'd send you to Jerusalem. 
So you can tell Pilate was not high in the list of favors with Rome, the very fact he was in charge there. So the last thing he needs is riots and insurrections and things that make him look bad because I'm not sure there would have been any lower places to send him other than maybe a prison somewhere. Bottom line, like most politicians, he's looking out for his own interests, his own powers, and integrity is a cheap price to sell for doing that. He brings him, he's back, and then we see, this seems to be what we're seeing is the second time around here in Matthew, in, in verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. And when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. See, here he has an opportunity to defend himself. But again, prophecy is being fulfilled. In Isaiah 53, 7, we read, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He did not dignify this court or the charges by defending himself. Now, two reasons for that. One, because this was all coming about in the fulfillment of prophecy. But the other reason is you can't defend yourself in kangaroo courts against false charges because nobody cares what your answer is. Pilate might or might not have maybe, but the bottom line was Pilate was going to do what Pilate needed to do that was expedient for the peace. So why defend yourself? I says a lot to people, you know, if you get yourself in a situation where you're defending yourself, most of the time all that does is make you look guilty anyway when we get defensive. Better thing is don't defend yourself, especially against false charges. I mean, there are times we need to, but most of the times there's no point in answering people who've already made up their minds. Yes? It wasn't like Pilate didn't know he was innocent. Oh, yeah. That's why he sent him off in the first, after the first hearing to Herod because he knew he was innocent. And under Roman law, he was giving himself a chance to defend himself. But even if he had, and even though Pilate had heard it, and even though Pilate already knew, maybe he was looking for some way out. If Jesus said just the right thing, somehow he could have worked it out. But the fact is, he was going to do what he needed to do. There's there's two ways you can be complicit in all these events. One is by lying and intentionally trying to bring about Jesus' death. And the other is by helping in the process, knowing he's innocent, even though you're not the one bringing the charges. So Pilate is equally responsible for the events that are going on here. Even Herod in his sort of schlocky way was by not being willing to take a responsibility for the situation and by just passing it back. That made him complicit, too, which maybe both of them knowing that they'd been involved in the death of an innocent man may have also been a reason they became good friends. You know how that works out. And so the fact is they were complicit, too. But what's the news bulletin? We're all we're complicit, so. You know, these people got tagged through all the history for what they'd done. We're lucky we don't have as good a publicist, but we're equally complicit. And God knows that. 
And he's the only one that matters. He could still get out of this situation, Pilate, by dumping off the responsibility on somebody else, which is exactly what he does here um, or tries to do here in this last section, which um, starts in verse 15. Now, it was the governor's custom. Now, this isn't Roman law necessarily. This was something that Pilate apparently had gotten into the habit of doing um, at the feast. That's talking about during Passover week to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, played by Anthony Quinn, if I remember correctly. Oh. <laughs> so when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one, uh, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy they handed Jesus over to him. Now, here's his thinking. First of all, he's dumping the responsibility, whatever happens, on them, the crowd. Secondly, it ha- he's thinking the crowd, I mean, Barabbas had a be like saying, who do you want to release, Jesus or Charles Manson? Sort of assumed the crowd would go for Jesus because everybody knew who Barabbas was. And so, and he also, and he did this because he knew that really the only ones that were trying to kill Jesus were the Jewish leaders. So this was, he felt like, okay, I've got it. You know, this is the, this is the deal. I'm not going to put an innocent guy to death. I'm off the hook. They can't be mad. You know, everything's just going to be fine and dandy. Poor Pilate missed the boat on a number of charges, on a number of ways here. First of all, and by the way, while this is going on, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent to him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in the dream because of him. I wonder, this is me wondering, not God. I wonder, is God, through Pilate's wife, given Pilate an opportunity to take himself off the hook? I mean, Satan could have sent the dream trying to interfere with this, but Satan seems to have missed the boat on all of this and was trying to move it forward, so that seems unlikely. Is a coincidence she just had a bad Italian pizza and and had knew what was going on? So she, or did God, through the Holy Spirit, send her a dream, which is certainly a biblical concept, warning her to warn her husband, giving for his sake, because this is going to happen no matter what, to give Pilate a chance to get off the hook. I don't know, but it is an interesting thing to think about because it's not out of the realm of possibility. So he's got to take the responsibility for his own actions. He doesn't, but he's got to. So back to Luke 13 to 24, Stone chapter 23. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and I've found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death Therefore, I'll punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So he was guilty of the things they were trying to convince Rome that Jesus had done. Jesus is innocent. Barabbas wasn't. When wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Apparently, it seems, Sometime during the night, remember, because this is all going on within that 12-hour window. And behind closed doors, where did this crowd come from? 
Apparently, somewhere along the line, the chief priests and the elders may have go gone to the Yellow Pages, to the rent-a-mob section, and rented a mob that they paid to come in and say, crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas. Now, mob mentality, even if there are others there, mob mentality what it, being what it is, pretty soon the whole bunch is doing this. They have no intention of letting Pilate off the hook. Remember, there's a few million people still in town. Passover is still going on. All right. And we've got, I don't know how many out there yelling, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. What is Pilate afraid of? With validity, he's afraid there's going to be a full-blown riot that's going to tear down Jerusalem. Remember the Chicago riots? Remember the L.A. riots? It's pretty soon they're breaking windows, turning over cars. No reason at all. Once it started, people were just jumping on the bandwagon, rioting and looting and burning for the sake of rioting and looting and burning. That, so Pilate's fears were not without merit. And interestingly enough, even in this, Jesus is dying to preserve a city that will soon be destroyed. His death saves Barabbas. And some fiction writers have decided that was enough to turn Barabbas into a good guy. The fact of the matter is he's stuck. He feels like, and we always have choices, but he feels like he has no choice here. That he's been backed into a corner that he has no way out of. And so what happens is then he stands up there in front of all these people, shows him Charles Manson, shows him Jesus, and says, which one do you want? And the crowd says, give us Charles Manson. And he goes, I can't believe this. I've had it. I'm through. I knew when they sent me here, these people were a pain in the neck. And this just proves that the whole situation is unworkable. I'm going to do what I got to do to keep things from getting out of hand so maybe I can finally get transferred to a garbage scowl that would be better than working in this place. That's what he's thinking. Or something along. <laughs> the object of all of this is the risen Christ. Yeah. So nobody has any control of the situation but God. Pilate's about the only one I feel a degree of sympathy for. A little bit. Because he doesn't, I mean, he's sort of like the innocent bystander in a way that's got sucked into it. But he's a politician, so I can't feel Anyway, so what's he, what's he do? Okay, he says, enough is enough. So Pilate, verse 24, when saw he was getting nowhere. But instead, the, an uproar was starting. Good old Barabbas, huh? So he took the water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. He said, it is your responsibility. Okay, I'm up here. I got no control. So I refuse to make a decision. I'm just going. So therefore, that means I'm not responsible. I was only following orders. Trouble is, it doesn't work that way, does it? Abdicating responsibility doesn't let one off the hook when it's one's responsibility to make a righteous decision. But he washes his hands of the whole thing, which is where we've gotten that idea. And interestingly enough, and here is a verse, a, couple, a verse that has been more misused 
and the cause of anti-Semitism. Verse 25, all the people answered, all the people from the rent-a-mob, and said, let his blood be on us and on our children. See, the Jews are Christ killers. They deserve to be persecuted. Uh, they deserve, you know, that's how, that's the logic that has been used throughout into the Middle Ages in the persecution of the Jewish people and the persecution of Israel. See, they brought it on themselves. They said this would be the case, and so they deserve it generation after generation after generation. Problem is, this was a, sort of like a standard oath, but biblically, and in this case, biblically means in the Old Testament, they couldn't put that responsibility onto their children. Scripture says exactly the opposite. In Deuteronomy 24:16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. There is no such thing as generational sin. Even if we were holding all of these people responsible, that has nothing to do with their kids, biblically. So to try to hold generations of Israel guilty after these people legally, biblically holds no water. It's just more line for line sake to justify sin. We see similar in Jeremiah 31, 29 to 30. In those days, people no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and their children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. Okay. Again, what is the biblical responsibility? We are all responsible for our own actions. Does that mean there are consequences to children for their parents' actions? Absolutely. And by the way, for those of you who have had kids, you've certainly learned there are consequences to parents for their children's actions. But not in terms of sin, in terms of them receiving the responsibility for your sin. They have enough of their own sins to receive responsibility for. This has been used to drive that satanically driven anti-Semitism that isn't interested in truth. See, you can't show these passages to people that want to say that because those are just excuses anyway for their behavior. It's the same thing. But even if they, even if this was true, the problem is it can't be true because Jesus himself made it clear he was the one in charge of his own death. And he made sure that he asked for, well, Luke, Luke has a lot of stuff this morning. 2334, Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus said, forgive them. So to hold this against not just these individuals, but a nation for generations is unbiblical. Why aren't we holding it against Rome? After all, this was all done under Rome's authority. Really, the Gentiles were responsible because the Jews didn't even have the authority. If Pilate had had a backbone and said no and put his soldiers around the place, that would have been the end of it. Although that wasn't going to happen because God was in control and this was all consistent with God's program. See? And that's that's what we've got to keep coming back to all of this. Is that God was in control. Christ was born to die. People could have chosen to do right things. 
But the end result would have still had Christ on the cross because that's what it was all about. But there were some people that would have been able to stand before God righteous in Christ's righteousness because they had made good choices. You know, with what we see going on in the world today, the church will withstand all of this stuff. The church is really strong in other countries in the world. And there are strong churches still in this country. Okay, But the church is not going to fall based on who the politicians are and what the hostilities are. After all, under the greatest hostilities and the greatest persecutions seems to be when the church is at its greatest and its strongest. So when we say, oh boy, things are really bad today and look how the church is being... Well, of course, the church is being persecuted in this country. No offense, but I mean, that's pretty secondary compared to the way the church is persecuted in other places. But even that will be enough to strengthen it, I think. Because we're not, you know, hey, I'm sorry, if you've never exercised, starting with five pound weights is all you can handle. So if we've had it really easy and the persecution isn't that strong, it's enough to maybe help us. So, Barabbas is freed. Jesus is sent off to be crucified. And and how does it end up? Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and then handed him over to the soldiers. And then the governor's soldiers, and we'll pick up at that same this same point next time. Then, then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head and again and again. But they had mocked him. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. Now, the mocking, you know, this this wasn't uncommon because the soldiers were bored and this is what they did for entertainment. Okay, The scourging and the beating had a practical benefit and they would do this with the whips with bone and, and metal in it to tear them up. And the be- benefit was that by doing this, they were almost killing the prisoner and they wouldn't live as long on the cross. It was just another way of speeding up the process. And they didn't think about it. You know, this is, these are the military in a country that's lost to them and they're in authority over. They look at the people as, you know, animals that they have to deal with because they're stuck in this backwater and they take their frustration out on them. You know, in one, there's no excuse for what they're doing, but what they were doing was consistent with the way the Roman military worked. And in a lot of ways, their wickedness was no way the wickedness of the chief priests and elders because they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know who this person was. They were just doing what they always did. And so that was nowhere near rose to the level of what those had been, of what those who had brought him up in charges had done. You know, we focus on this a lot because it, it's, and it's a horrifying thing. But it's not the real horror. The real horror was what those in power were doing and abusing their authority. So, think on these verses. Mark 15, 16 to 20. 
The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called him together, the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and twisted a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began calling out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Isaiah 53:5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 56. I offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And finally Isaiah 53.7. He was oppressed and afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth.